Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our Advent series on this third Sunday of Advent. So the word Advent simply means coming, and as Christians, we celebrate Christ's coming past tense, and we celebrate Christ's coming future tense. It's both and, and it's very necessary that we do both. And this coming of Christ highlights God's fulfillment of his promised Savior, The title of our series is Jesus is Better. Jesus is Better. We've preached little vignettes, primarily from the book of Hebrews. We preached about Jesus as being better than the angels. Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant. And this week, Jesus, a better sacrifice. Jesus, a better sacrifice. And so the idea here is to dovetail with what David preached last week in... um, Jesus being the mediator of a better covenant, and this week we're going to drill down into the fact that he is a better sacrifice than those old covenant or Old Testament sacrifices. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 9, but before we get there, I I want us to think about something. I want you to think about something right now. You ready? How do you approach God? How do you approach God? So, so when you think about God, and you think about approaching him, how, do, how are you going to do it? Are, are you going to hope that your good works earn you something with God? Are you going to hope that somehow what you've done wrong will not affect how you approach God? Because here's the deal. Whenever we consider approaching God, normally it's in the context of being somewhat aware of the fact that we probably haven't lived up to everything he's told us to do in this book right here, right? In the vernacular, as David preached last week, we kind of know that we've blown it. We're going to talk about that this week. It's called conscience. So in that context, how are you going to approach God? When, when your conscience is guilty, when you have thoughts that I want to approach God, I've heard from the Bible and from the preaching, and, and just there's a sense of he's good and everything, but I also know I've blown it, so I, I've got this guilty conscience. Here's the question. How do you relieve a guilty conscience? That, that question drives this narrative. Let me ask it again. I don't think I'm the only one here this morning with a guilty conscience. Now you're thinking, what did Al do that he's got a guilty conscience? If only you knew. <laughs> but don't we all? So, so how do you relieve a guilty conscience? When your conscience is telling you, uh-uh, I blew it. How do you relieve that guilty conscience? I mean, it's Christmas, right? So maybe some of us, maybe some of you, just give gifts. You know, guys, you kind of blew it with your wife. You didn't call. You didn't tell her you were going to be two hours late. So maybe I'll just get her a gift. This time I'm approaching my wife. Now transfer that to I'm approaching God. I know I've blown it. Is there a gift I can give him? Some of us work. We have a guilty conscience. We're just going to work it off. You ever done that when you do something really bad? Right? And you come home and the house is totally clean. Every corner has been scrubbed. Because you're trying to to assuage. You're trying to relieve that guilty conscience. Some of us punish ourselves. We actually do harm to ourselves. Because we know we deserve somehow, some way. Something's got to be done about this guilt. Some of us just dive into pleasure. You know, we just dive into pleasure. Some of us just drive into distraction. It's time to binge watch something somewhere. 
How do we relieve a guilty conscience? How do we approach God? See, that's the context of of Hebrews chapter 9. We heard last week in Hebrews chapter 8 of a better covenant. And Jesus is the mediator of this better covenant. And Jesus tells us about this new covenant that's better than the Jewish old covenant. And so as we read Hebrews 9 this morning, we kind of press into the the better sacrifice of this better covenant. The Hebrew Christians in the first century were actually being tempted to go back to the old covenant because they were experiencing such persecution and such pressure for being believers in Christ as Messiah in the new covenant. So they were tempted to go back to the old covenant. And as we heard last week, that old covenant is inferior. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, the new covenant. And, And by... And by extension, church, even though we're Christians and we just received communion, and we know that Jesus' sacrifice is better than the sacrifice of the Old Testament in our heads, functionally, we go to the old reliable when our conscience is guilty. We, do, we try to do self-atonement. We're wracked with guilt. We have shame. We don't know how to deal with it. Some of us try to stuff it down. Pops up every once in a while. Others try to work it off. Jesus, a better sacrifice. God's speaking to us this morning. He's going to compare those sacrifices and he's going to bring hope to our souls. What do we see in verse 9? What do we see in verse 14, church? We see the issue here of one's conscience. Look at, look at it with me in verse 9. It says very, very clearly that by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, verse 8, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Speaking of this blood of bulls and goats. And look at verse 14. Wonderful verse 14 which says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ's sacrifice is better because his sacrifice can cleanse our conscience from dead works, from those things we spoke of, from trying to offer the gifts or working harder or doing something to some way self-atone for my sins to get back into God's grace as we know that we've done some things that are wrong and we know we need a clean conscience. And so as we contemplate God and everybody does, Romans says that they actually suppress the knowledge of God. Why? Because it's a little scary. I've got this unclean conscience, and there is a holy God. How am I going to approach him? The idea is that it's only the sacrifice of Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling these Hebrew Christians, because they were tempted to go back to the law. But that's what God is telling us today, because we're tempted to go back to however we used to deal with our guilty conscience, whether it's medicating it, denying it, self-righteously trying to make up for it. You see, our forefather, Adam, when he sinned, when he said no to God's authority and rule, his conscience was immediately guilty. How do we know that? Because in the Bible it tells us as soon as God showed up after Adam's sin, what did Adam do? He hid himself. 
And we have been hiding ever since. Just as ridiculous as it, was, it is for us to consider that Adam would think that he actually could hide from God, so it is ridiculous to think that we can hide from God. But our consciences are so burdened that we can't take it. Our consciences are weighed down by sin. We are sinners and we intuitively know that. See, this idea of conscience plays a big role in Hebrews 9. Let me read to you a definition of conscience by P.T. O'Brien in his commentary on this verse, on the screen. The term conscience was used of the inward faculty of distinguishing between right and wrong. Hence, moral consciousness. In Hebrews, the conscience has a divine orientation and describes the whole person in relation to God. It is the point at which a man or a woman confronts God's holiness. That is a very scary moment. A guilty conscience can be cleansed or purified only by Christ's sacrifice of atonement. Not by what you and I can try to do. It's only by Christ's sacrifice of atonement, by his blood, that our consciences can be cleansed from dead works, all the stuff we try to do to make up for a guilty conscience, to include the dead work of denying God or downgrading God. But only Christ's blood can cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let me just ask you a question here. What are the dead works that you do to try to cleanse your conscience? Dear Christian, if you're not a Christian, I pray that you would become one before this morning is over as you hear the gospel. But dear Christian, what are the dead works that you engage in to try to relieve your guilty conscience? to try to relieve your conscience from those things that you know are wrong, for ways you know that you've not obeyed God's word, when you yell at your family, at your wife or your children, or you become bitter, or you look at illicit images that you shouldn't be looking at, or, you, or you're greedy or proud, or that word comes out, that little sarcastic comment comes out in the midst of a conversation, and as soon as it comes out of your mouth, you go, ah, oh, not again. What are those dead works that you are trying to do to relieve that guilty conscience. So here's the good news. The blood of Jesus has taken care of that guilty conscience. The blood of Jesus has taken care of that guilty conscience so that you can serve the living God. It cleanses your conscience so that Christ now would move you into service for God. In fact, I believe that's the main point of this text. Christ's sacrifice on the screen brings us into service, into God's service. Christ's sacrifice brings us into Christ, into God's service. Look, the end game isn't just for you to have a clean conscience and go on your merry way. That is a man-centered gospel. It's attractive. Listen, it's a multi-billion dollar industry to go to therapy. And I'm not mocking that at all. Because people's souls are typically troubled. 
Because we are sinners. And if we're not sinning, people are sinning against us, which then tempts us to sin or brings us to a place of despair. And so we're trying to get this clean conscience. We're looking for this peace. We're look, we've got the Garden of Eden in us before the fall, but we live after the fall. And so we're trying to figure out, how can I get a clean conscience? But Christian, the end game isn't just that you would have a clean conscience but it's you would have a clean conscience so that you would now serve the living God. Look at verse 14 again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works? That We do want that. Why? To serve the living God. Christ's sacrifice brings us into God's service. All right, so let's take a look at this text. We're going to look at two things. How Christ sacrifice is better and why sacri- Christ sacrifice is better. Better what? Better to cleanse our conscience. Why? To serve the living God. Point one. How Christ sacrifice is better. So what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to show us the Old Testament sacrifice in verses 1 to 10. And then he's going to show us how Christ sacrifice is better in verses 11 to 14. So look at your text there. Let's take a look at the Old Testament sacrifice. Number one, verses one to five, we see that the Old Testament sacrifice was done in the earthly place of worship. Where was that? That was in the temple, which has since been destroyed. But it was done in a physical temple. And in this temple, if you read verses one to five, you'll see there was a holy place. And then there was this curtain. And there was this holy of holies. And so that's where the sacrifice was done. Number one. Number two, under point one, it was a regular sacrifice. Look at verses six and seven. The the priest regularly would come in to bring the sacrifice of bulls and goats. All kinds of sacrifices were brought, but it was an ongoing sacrifice. Next, this first first covenant, this old covenant sacrifice was the blood of bulls and goats. We see that in verse 7b, but look at verse 8. This sacrifice did not bring access to God. These preparations, verse 8, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, what does it say next? is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. And this sacrifice is unable to cleanse our conscience. We've already read this verse several times. According to this arrangement, verse 9, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the the worshiper. And finally, in verse uh, 10, we see here that it's a ceremonial cleansing. It's a cleansing of, of your body. It's, it's, it's the foods that you eat. It's a washing of the body. All right, now, that's the old covenant sacrifice. Listen, can I just say, that's also your sacrifice when you try to do all the stuff you try to do to get your conscience right before God. At most, it's ceremonial. At most, it, it, it sort of holds you steady for a while, but it has no life It has no access to God. You cannot access God on your own covenant. Listen, you can't fix it. I mean, some of us are fixers. Where there's a problem, I'm just going to fix it. But you can't. Because Christ's sacrifice 
is better. Look at verses 11 to 14. Why is Christ's sacrifice better? Well, number one, it's in a heavenly temple. Old Testament sacrifice, Alpino's sacrifice today that he tries to do to get things right with God is in an earthly temple. Christ's sacrifice is in the heavenly temple. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Now he's talking about the heavenly holy places, the place of God. And it's a once and for all sacrifice. David mentioned this last week. Christ is not continually sacrificed every time we receive communion. That's why the the Protestant view of communion is different than the Roman Catholic view of communion. We do not continually sacrifice Christ week in and week out. It is once and for all, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and bulls and calves, but by means of his own blood. And that's the first, third thing. The blood is not bull, bulls and goats or, or calves, but it's the blood of Jesus. It's a better place, the heavenly temple. It's a once and for all sacrifice, and it's better blood. It's the blood of Christ. And it secures eternal redemption. But by means of his own blood, reading verse 12c, thus securing an eternal redemption. At best, the machinations, the things you do to try to get yourself right with God may secure an afternoon of peace. Maybe. If you get high enough, it would secure an afternoon or evening of not being conscious of it. But you've got to wake up in the morning. When you finished binge-watching, whatever you're binge-watching, at some point, you've got to face reality again. And then what are you going to do? Go sacrifice again and again and again. And if it's it's destructive enough, but Jesus, once and for all, to cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. And that's what verses 13 and 14 bring to us. That is the point here of this text. I believe that is where the author is bringing us. For if the blood of bulls and goats, verse 13, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, external ceremonial, how much more will the blood of Christ, from lesser to greater, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Oh man, that's our hope. That's our hope, church. Now why is Christ's sacrifice better? Why is Christ's sacrifice better? It's better because it is the blood that was pointed to by the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. David mentioned this last week. When Israel was at Mount Sinai, around 1500 BC, God had taken them out of Egypt, delivered them from the bondage of Pharaoh and slavery to Pharaoh, a picture of Satan in the world, and constituted them his people at Mount Sinai, taking them through the Red Sea, a picture of baptism, and he's giving them, he's making them his people. He's saying, all right, now, you're my people, and here's who I am. He gives them the law, and then he gives them the sacrificial system. But because they are unholy, and he is holy, he told Moses, don't let anybody touch this mountain, because if they do, they'll die. In fact, when you read about this, the people are trembling. Lightning is coming down, and God's speaking. It's like us, right? When we think about God. But what did God do to make it ceremonially possible for them to relate to him, to hold them as his people through the centuries until the Savior would come? Well, he sprinkled blood on them. In fact, I think David said he he threw blood on them. I love the way you said that. It's shocking. 
Imagine you're standing on the, on the front row and just blood's coming on you. That's what it says in, in Exodus 24, 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these works. That was a blood oath. That was a covenant. There were serious ramifications. If you broke it, there were wonderful blessings if you kept it. But they couldn't keep it. So that blood was never intended to, to cleanse their conscience. Your works cannot give you favor with God. But Jesus' works can. See, that blood was meant to point to Christ. And I love what David said last week as he preached chapter 8. God, God took the word that was engraved on two tablets of stone. And according to the prophecy that David preached about from Jeremiah 31, he said, now I'm going to engrave that word in your heart. That's a picture of salvation. That's a picture of a new heart, man. You need a new heart. And Jesus gives you that new heart. He engraves the word on our hearts. And as we heard last week, we have the promise of obedience. Hebrews 8.10. If you haven't heard that message, go listen to it. We have the promise of intimacy. Hebrews 8.11. We have the promise of mercy. Oh God, have mercy on me. Hebrews 8.12. And it's, it's, it's that promise that Jesus came to fulfill. Because when Jesus instituted communion, the Lord's Supper... On that night, listen to the words that he said to his people. Luke twenty two twenty. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, taken. So we're jumping into the context. Jesus had taken the cup of blessing, taken the cup, and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now take this cup. And he said the following. This cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. Jesus took the cup of curse. Because the covenant said if you break the law, you are cursed. God said to Adam, when you sin, you will die. And he died indeed spiritually, immediately, and eventually he died. And we've all, every human being since has died since. So he took the cup of cursing. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was crucified on a cross. On purpose. Cursed. He was crucified naked. That was a curse for a Jew to be naked in public. He was cursed in every way. He drank the cup. But then now the cup we drink is the cup of blessing, Christian. When I take that cup up this morning, I'm well aware of my sins. I'm well aware of where I failed God. But I'm more aware of where Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. Jesus fulfills the covenant promise given to Moses, held within Israel through the law all those years, and as Galatians says, as a tutor instructing our hearts, convicting our hearts, we know we can't do it. So when you're finally done trying to get your conscience clean before God, dear Christian, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. You see... This whole idea of Advent is in this text. I want you to look at the word appeared. We're going to trace the word appeared. It's three times in this text. And those three words of appeared kind of mirror the Advent that I spoke of at the beginning of the service. We look at Christ's past coming and we look at his future coming. 
It, it mirrors the three elements of salvation. I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. Justification, I have been saved. If you're a Christian, there was a day that you repented and believed by grace alone, because of Christ's spirit alone, not because you chose him, because he chose you, but then you responded, you're saved. But then we're all being saved according to scripture. He's conforming us into the image of Christ. That we might serve him. That we might fulfill our call to display God's glory as true image bearers. Oh, that's what God looks like. Don't you know that's the call in the church? That this community around us will say, oh, that's what Jesus looks like. Together, you're right, Corey, as a body. Now, obviously, each one of us has to make progress, but together. And then one day we'll be glorified. Future tense, we will be saved. So look at the three mentions of appear here. Look at 9-11. But when Christ appeared, past tense, as a high priest of the good things that have to come. Speaking of Christ's first coming and his sacrifice, his once and for all sacrifice by his blood to cleanse our conscience, to give us blessing. He took the curse. He rose from the dead. We have forgiveness. Then look at verse 24. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear, present tense. Do you know that Christ's advent tells us that right now, Christian, Jesus is at the right hand of God and he's interceding for you. That's why when you try to intercede for yourself, A, it doesn't work, and B, you don't have to. The one who took your sin, Christian, Right now, Jesus is interceding for Palm Vista. And we need it, don't we? I don't know about you, I need it. He's our great high priest, present tense. He knows what you did last night. He knows when you've been naughty and when you've been nice. Truly, no myth. He took the naughtiness. He gives you his niceness. He is your advocate. You don't have to do something to get back into God's good graces like you may have to if you blow it with your spouse or or children with your parents. Jesus is there right now, church. Does Does that encourage you? But look at the future tense, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear. Christ appeared, justification. Christ currently is appearing, sanctification. He's our great high priest, our advocate. And Christ will appear. Notice what it says in verse 28. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, no, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, listen to me. Repent and believe right now. I know God's the one that's going to enable you to do that right now. Because when he comes back and he's coming back, it's not going to be to deal with sin. He's already done that. It's going to be to... To, to, to bless those and to save those. You understand that word save in the glorification part of it. Those who eagerly await him. Christian, that also speaks of a promise that is so amazing. So amazing. Christ's sacrifice brings us into God's service. I mean, that's the takeaway here. I don't serve God. God to cleanse my conscience from the things I did wrong last night, yesterday, last week. I don't serve God to get on on, uh, his good list. That's where Christmas isn't helpful. I serve God because he cleansed my conscience. 
He cleansed my conscience so I could serve him. He, he, he cut that curtain in half. When Jesus died, the curtain in the Holy of Holies was ripped from top to bottom. No small feet. It would be like these partitions suddenly opening and no one could close them again. There's access to God. I know God now. He is my friend, not because I earned it, because Jesus earned it. He is my father. I'm no longer an orphan. Jesus is my brother. That's what it says in Hebrews. Can you imagine that? So that I might serve him. Here's the appeal. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Can I ask you this? What stain on your conscience do you need to believe God to cleanse by the blood of Jesus? What dead works are you currently doing to try to cleanse your conscience from that stain? And what would it look like for you and us as a church to serve the living God from a cleansed conscience? What does it communicate to a world in bondage to dead works when we serve and we proclaim him who freed us from dead works with hearts overflowing with gratitude and joy? Friends, let us remain faithful to the one who cleansed our conscience by his sacrifice, eager to serve him, eager to run to him as our father who's made a way. Let us pray. Worship team, would you join me? Father, I pray that all those right now whose consciences are stained, Lord, reveal to them that no stain of sin is a permanent stain. That stain does come out. Not with cold water, not with whatever other thing or baking soda or whatever other homemade remedy. It's not through our good works. It's not through being good enough. It's not through giving enough. It's not through suffering enough. No, that stain comes out by the blood of Jesus. Lord, Lord, we want to believe this. Really believe it. We want to be done with self-atonement. We want to be done with dead works. We want to serve you with joy. Lord, we want to run into your presence, especially right after we've sinned. Thank you for the book of Psalms that gives us the language to run into your presence when we've sinned. We want to be done with trying to get right and do enough right things and be a good boy and good girl long enough, hours or days, so now we can pray to God again. Now I can go to church again. Now I can go to community group again. No, Lord, we run into your presence with the stains. We say, Father, cleanse me. I'm dirty. If that's you right now, just take a moment to run to him with whatever it is you're thinking. What can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, your blood, it speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. All the empty claims that I've told myself. Your blood speaks a righteousness for me and stands in my defense. Jesus, let us see into the heavenlies right now. You are our advocate, our high priest with the Father right now. I believe your word. Help my unbelief, Lord. Jesus, it's your blood. Lord, we worship you in faith. I pray that you would work in the hearts of those that are worshiping you to truly cleanse their conscience from dead works that we might serve you with joy. Let us stand. Let us sing that prayer out to God. Listen, I'm aware that this message is pretty intense. 
If you need prayer, uh, we'll be here. David and Corey and, and I will be here. If you want to come down for prayer, we're happy to pray for you. If you just want to just run to God and through this song on your own, that's fine. We just want to offer ministry to you this morning.